This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Today we feature a Puritan woman who was not only the first published poet in British North America, but when her first work was published, without her consent, in 1650, it may very well be one of the first serious works published by any English-speaking woman anywhere in the world. You know, that sounds so crazy, but it's also true. I mean, up to that point in history, only a handful of women had any original verse recorded for sure. I mean, there were a few. I mean, we think of, you know, Lady Jane Grey in in 1522. But even, you know, most of the things she did were translations. There's this other woman by the name of Anne Askew. She was tortured and burned as a heretic, and she recorded an account of her own trial, and part of that had a moving poem. But, you know, that's not really a model you want to... <laughs> <laughs> not very successful. No. Yeah, I'd say not the best uh, career path. <laughs> but didn't Queen Elizabeth I do some writing? Yeah, I mean, she did, and she wrote some religious pieces. I think there were some translations, some prose for sure, and even a little poetry. But honestly... Uh, As far as I know, there was a woman by the name of Elizabeth Carey in 1613, and she wrote a piece called The Tragedy of Marion, the Fairy Queen of Jewry. And she's really credited as being the first woman to produce an original poetic drama in the English language. Um, Sir Philip Sidney's niece, Lady Mary Rath, published a fantasy piece in 1621. There are a couple of other women But, you know, we haven't heard of most of these women. They're not notable. Their works aren't, you know, they haven't stood the test of time, not like Anne Bradstreet. Anne Bradstreet is among the first, and her work has stood the test of time. Just to finish the list, by the way, at first, I think we should, you know, go there. Uh, You have Catherine Phillips, uh, the matchless Orinda. Uh, She was a contemporary of Anne's, but she's really been given the title of the real first English poetess. But her work, I will say, wasn't published until after her death 
1664. Well, if you're given the full picture of Anne's notable peers, I think we want to mention, although I know she wasn't a poet, Afro Ben. Uh, she's notable for being the first woman to ever make a living as a writer. She was a playwright, um, often, of course, being a spy for uh, Charles II, which is where I've heard of her. Well, yes, uh, Ben is such a colorful character. She's certainly no Puritan, <laughs> to say the least. In fact, it wasn't really until the 20th century that people started taking her work seriously. Not because it didn't have literary merit, but because, you know, for a woman it was quite vulgar and morally depraved. I think I read that term once. Uh, Ridiculous, uh, considering what other things were being written at the time, but I won't rant. Uh, She might not even be remembered at all. I don't know. I mean, most people know of her from Virginia Woolf, who honored her in her famous uh, work, A Room of One's Own. And let me um, quote Woolf here. All women together ought to let flowers fall upon the tomb of Afroben, which is most scandalously, but rather appropriately, in Westminster Abbey, for it was she who earned them to write to speak their minds. There's a shout out. You know, I know we've gone a bit on a tangent, but I think we forget sometimes how long ago the 1600s actually were and how different the world was in so many ways. And for me, this is interesting because it makes Anne Bradstreet's personal story all that much more remarkable. Uh, Well, you know, of course, I agree, uh, even if you haven't heard of any of the names we just mentioned. And I, for sure, don't know these women. (laughs) But when I think of this time period, I immediately remember that 1611 is when the King James Version of the Bible was published. Um, If that helps create a little more historical context. Yeah, I guess that's a notable piece to include of the... (laughs) Of the period. Some might have heard of it. Uh, yeah. You know, when we think of Anne Bradstreet and her place in history, I think it's important that she's included if we're going to be serious in understanding the chronology of American literature. She used to be included in all high school anthologies, although I know she's been deleted in the most recent um, textbook publications. Why do you think that is? Oh, they never ask me to, oh. to weigh in on these decisions, hmm. and I won't speculate, but... Uh, for what for what it's worth, she's worth paying attention to, and I think she's worth honoring, if nothing else, for her place in history as a writer among men, as an American in a broadening English-speaking landscape. But beyond just being a first, you know, she's interesting as a person. Gary, before we speak about her on a personal level, though, 1611, American continent, let's just drop in the history Uh, Because she was a witness to some very historically significant events on this continent, anyway. Sure. Uh, You know, well, in England during this period, and we're we're talking the last half of the 1500s and the early part of the 1600s, the Protestants in England were divided. And now, uh, when we were discussing Swift, we talked about the differences between the Anglicans and the Catholics. And, of course, we know that fight will continue for many, many more years. Uh, But just on the Protestant side, there was a division among the Protestants themselves. Um, There were people in the Protestant church who thought the Anglicans were too close to the Catholics in their beliefs uh, and in their practices, and they wanted a simpler form of Christianity 
based solely on the Bible and not on any kind of tradition. And they called themselves separatists or, or Puritan separatists. And a leader in this group was a lawyer by the name of John Winthrop. And Winthrop led the first large wave of Puritans from England to North America uh, with this idea that they were going to live out a more pure Christian life in the new world. And and. Bradstreet's father, Thomas Dudley, and Anne's husband were in this group of Puritans who decided to follow this path. In uh, 1630, Winthrop uh, and the Dudleys, along with around 700 other Puritans, set out for the New World. And remember, though, that they were not the first Europeans to do this. They weren't even the first English or even really the first Puritans. There were many others who had come uh, before with varying degrees of success to try life in the New World. And, uh, you know, then that was to the chagrin of the Native American population, as we know, who were not immune to European bacteria and viruses and were hit with incredible epidemics of diseases, you know, including smallpox. That was a disease that almost killed Ann Dudley before she even left home. And over uh, 20 million Americans or Native Americans or 95% of the Native population would be wiped out within just a few years. I mean, it's really hard to imagine this, this clash. Oh, it's incredibly sad. And of course, Something probably no one at the time even clearly understood. I mean, war is easy to see. I don't know that disease would be, but I would like to interject a thought here. This is a this is a couple hundred years before the idea of germ theory even existed. True. So how could you even know? Well, true, and and the entire colonial experience in America was very different. This I do know than colonialism in other parts of the Americas. I know we've discussed this. In other episodes, we talked about it when we were talking about Brazil. I mean, most explorers or colonial settlers were nothing but, you know, venture capitalists. We forget that. We think of the first European settlers in America as being Puritans. But, you know, that's just not right, is it? No, it is not. Not by (laughs) any means. Uh, You know, in fact, Winthrop's crew came into severe conflicts to the point that they had problems with other settlers who were already there that weren't Puritans. I mean, Roger Williams and Anne Hutchison are just a couple of names that stand out as founders of other colonies and ideologies that had serious conflicts with uh, Winthrop's crew. And uh, there are reasons why, though, that this particular group stands out among the rest. The first being is that they possessed, in large part due to their religion, the discipline that allowed them to survive on the frontier, and we can never forget they're living on a frontier. That is absolutely essential to understand. You know, the Roanoke colony in the 1580s completely failed. Jamestown uh, lost 80% of its population. The Popham colony in Maine uh, only made it 14 months before it was abandoned. I mean, the New World was harsh, and it was going to take a harsh people to really survive. Uh, but another reason, and, you know, it's an equally important reason, the Puritans were highly literate as compared to earlier groups like the Pilgrims. I would go uh, as far as to say there was no other community with such a vast biblical as well as classical base of knowledge. I mean, they read and produced Bible commentaries. They started the Boston Latin School in 1635. Um, Harvard was established by 1638. It had a printing press. Think about that in the New Wilderness. Uh, in fact, the New World would not get a second printing press until 1659 when Harvard got its second printing press. Students learned to write and speak in Latin. And let me put that in perspective for you. Winthrop Bradstreet and her father 
didn't even immigrate to the New World until 1630, and the Massachusetts Bay Colony had two schools within the decade. (laughs) You know, maybe this is just because we just finished doing our series on Gulliver's Travels, but to me, the Puritans come as close as humanly possible to Wynnum's. Oh, my goodness. In Voyage 4, they're serious, they're well-ordered, they're disciplined. I don't want to hang out with them. Sorry, Gulliver, (laughs) but there is something to recommend. Well, that's true. And they do get a bad rap, and part of us deserve, but I want to defend the Puritans here for a moment and for a couple of reasons. (laughs) Uh, First, most of us get uh, our impression of the Puritans from the Crucible or the Scarlet Letter, and those two pieces are designed to be critical. Uh, and they also are informed by the Salem witch trials. Remember that Nathaniel Hawthorne had an ancestor that was one of the judges. Uh, we wouldn't want all of America today to be expressed by a, a single hate crime, which is true. what that was. And it's just not a fair representation of the group as a whole. And uh, Of course, there were fanatics, and Winthrop himself was an extreme person. There's no doubt about that. But there was actually a wide range of views within the Puritan group. Um, The structure of civil as well as church government was flexible enough to accommodate really a lot of contradictory stances, and it wouldn't have survived if it hadn't, truly. Even Anne Bradstreet herself is an expression of that. There is a lot of her poetry that talks about her struggle with atheism at times. So there was more diversity of thought than they're generally given when you think in terms of the crucible and the scarlet letter. You know, having said that, another point to make, to the credit of the Puritans. (laughs) Since we're going down that road. Yes, is that it is their discipline that allowed them to even survive. I mean, everyone had to work. Everyone had to work hard. Winthrop himself was no exception. And he led by example by building his own home and He worked on the construction of the public buildings, and by work, I mean he did the menial labor jobs that you would expect a leader to delegate, really, to lesser people. And uh, working together was applied to the body as well as the mind. And these were very disciplined people in every area of their lives, and they were fair and they were democratic. Uh, and that everyone was equal, and that's where we're going to get the birthplace of this idea of equality. Uh, and when we talk today at Puritan Work Ethic, that's where we get that. You know, I want to say this. They are the foundation of American-style government, where everyone gets an equal say and treated the same and no privilege for anyone. You know, the Puritans are the egalitarian antidote to that British social stratification they left behind. Well, fair enough. And, you know, they were living out, you know, what they believed. And there's something to be said for that. But here comes Anne Bradstreet. And she's not used to this kind of stern, you know, harsh, disciplined living style. Poor thing. Her father, Thomas Dudley, he'd been the steward to the Earl of Lincoln. Well, that's where she was born in 1612. <laughs> well, I want to cut in and say this. That is a big job. It's the highest ranking job on an estate, actually. And we could think of it as the uh, CEO of the estate. And the steward managed everything. He hired and fired people. He oversaw the harvest and livestock and collected rents and settled tenant disputes and kept the financial records. I mean, all of it. It was a really a position of extreme trust. That's what I mean. I mean, here's Anne. She she grew up until the age of 16 on this Earl's estate, living this genteel life. She, 
She's highly educated. She has access to the Earl's full library, and we know she took advantage of that. Um, she's around cultured people, progressive people, intellectual people all the time. I can just see the movie in front of me. She's rich. Her family's rich. She doesn't do manual labor. She drinks tea, eats cookies. She lived at the top of the food chain. She falls in love with her father's assistant, Simon Bradstreet. And, and Simon, he works for Mr. Dudley after graduating from Emmanuel College, Cambridge. I mean, they got married. Granted, she's 16. Uh, but, you know, she's set up. I mean, she's got this life of leisure in front of her. Except two years later, her husband and father get this idea that they want to go to the New World with with Winthrop on the Arbella. They're going to be a part of the Great Migration. <laughs> you know, it's hard to imagine the shock to her system between those two places. I mean, she could not possibly have had any idea what that was going to be like. I no. mean, life in the New World, even for the wealthy, which they were comparatively, even that life was rugged. I mean, everyone worked, both men and women, and there were really few amenities. I can see that movie, too. I mean, <laughs> learning how to boil water or whatever, you know. We know for a fact that even Bradstreet's father was stunned. This is in documentation when he arrived and he saw the realities of what life was going to be like on this, you know, quote unquote, city on a hill. The romanticism of this dreamy new world life, you know, that went quickly. I mean, Anne had a really difficult time adjusting. We know this. And even though, you know, it's not very Puritan to complain, she expressed later in her life, she wrote some memoirs, and, and I want to quote her. She said this, and you remember, this is coming from someone who's trying to understate things. After a short time, I changed my condition and was married and came into the country where I found a new world and new manners at which my heart rose. But after I was convinced it was the way of God, I submitted to it and joined to the church of Boston. Now that expression, my heart rose, you know, it means your emotions flared up. I mean, it almost means my heart sank. You know, things were bad. She reacted to them. Maybe for Simon and her father, you know, living here was a, a great place for them to find some professional advancement. I mean, they were both going to end up being governor before uh, the end of it. But for an upper class woman, this is not social advancement. I mean, she had to spiritualize her situation. It was a crisis of faith for her even to find the strength to stay. Well, of course, that's what they all did. And this is another difference between the Puritans and settlers in other places. Um, Georgia, for example, was uh, a penal colony, uh, as was Australia, both. And the pilgrims came to America because they literally had nothing in England. They were the absolute bottom of the social order. But the Puritans were more wealthy and established and certainly more educated than pilgrims were. So two distinct groups. And, you know, they had other motivations. And uh, this required buy-in from English wives and daughters to make a life here. And I would like to point out that a major reason why the British won the colonizing battle for North America was due to the fact that they brought women with well, them. Well, that's always a winner. The other <laughs> colonizing groups did not, and so women had the effect of creating homes in this new world, and the English were unique in that. And Winthrop wrote a very famous sermon before he even left England for the settlers in Massachusetts, and I think it's worth quoting, so let me read it. Bradstreet would have read it in that time period. 
We must be knit together in this work as one man. We must entertain each other in brotherly affection. We must be willing to abridge ourselves of our superfluities for the supply of others' necessities. We must uphold a familiar commerce together in all meekness, gentleness, patience, and liberality. We must delight in each other, make others' conditions our own, rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together, always having before our eyes our commission and community in the work, our community as members of the same body. So shall we keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Lord will be our God and delight to dwell among us as his own people and will command a blessing upon us all in all our ways so that we shall see much more of his wisdom, power, goodness, and truth than formerly we have been acquainted with. We shall find that the God of Israel is among us, when ten of us shall be able to resist a thousand of our enemies, when he shall make us a praise and glory that men shall say of succeeding plantations, the Lord make it like that of New England. For we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us, so that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken, and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, We shall be made a story and a byword through the world. We shall open the mouths of enemies to speak evil of the ways of God and all professors for God's sake. We shall shame the faces of many of God's worthy servants and because their prayers and cause their prayers to be turned into curses upon us till we be consumed out of the good land whither we are going. You know, it's inspirational. I can see why they believe they were creating this utopia i guess if you want to think of it <laughs> right well that phrase city on a hill has become a motif uh, in american history and it's been used to justify a whole host of things that really uh, aren't the call that winthrop is making here i mean president ronald reagan alone used the the phrase uh, over 30 times as president oh, wow. uh, john f kennedy was famous for using it it's been used by hundreds of speakers in the 20th century alone in fact it's misused a lot to be honest and What Winthrop wanted to do uh, was inspire these colonists to succeed and and have this buckle-down attitude that we see in Bradstreet. You know, okay, God wants me here, so I better make the most of it. Um, In fact, everyone is watching me. I better not fail. Winthrop wasn't even a preacher. He was a politician. Uh, He wanted the group to subordinate their own interests to the interests of the colony for the sake of survival, and and he used a religious argument, and he used a spiritual argument to create uh, the intrinsic motivation necessary for this whole thing to work, and it did work. You know, Winthrop served 18 terms as Massachusetts Bay Colony's governor from the time of his arrival uh, until 1649. You know, but having given him credit for his success, um, I have to add, for historical accuracy... (laughs) Winthrop, he was definitely not a saint, especially by today's standards, uh, which you know is not a fair way to judge historical figures. But he's known for really some unthinkable brutality towards Native American populations, and he practiced slavery, and he was intolerant of other belief systems. But this is Bradstreet's world, um, you know, which to me makes it even more remarkable that 20 years later, she's a published author. How did she even have the time or energy to write? 
I know. And let me add this detail. She gave birth to eight children. Oh, my gosh. And none of them died. That was unheard of at this time. Most women lost children, more children than survived. And one of her best poems, I wish we had time to read it, it's when she talks about how she's getting ready to have a baby and she doesn't know if she's going to be alive the next day. Oh, my gosh. I mean, that alone is simply incredible. You know, but there are other incredible things uh, that make her work stand out just from a historical perspective. And you have to remember, and, and I know this is a little bit of historical arrogance looking back in time, but writing was different back then. And um, most of the literature of the day was rhetorical and mostly sermons and election sermons were a big deal. And sermons uh, served in those days the same function as Fox News or MSNBC News today. I mean, it's where you got your information and your perspective on that information. Uh, for the Puritans, all writing was a way of seeing the will of God revealed in nature, um, in experience, uh, in history, or, or in current events. And that doesn't leave a large space for poetry. I say not. But even poetry, the little poetry that did exist, was um, rhetorical. And, you know, so what motivated her to write? Um, it wasn't incentivized by anything in the New World, especially for a woman. And women uh, in England were considered to have inferior brains. And oh, my. Samuel Johnson, who wouldn't be born <laughs> for almost another hundred years, had this to say about uh, women preachers. Sir, a woman's preaching is like a dog's walking on his hind legs. It is not done well, but you are surprised to find it's done at all. That guy better not have had a wife. <laughs> I'm sure <Ouch>. he did. <laughs> I see your point. Uh, I think there's something about Anne that she did not accept that kind of assessment of herself or of her sex in general. Well, I agree. Uh, but, you know, honestly, life on the frontier in America opened the eyes of a lot of men to the actual competence of their wives and women in general. And women in the New World were not ornamental. I mean, men and women created partnerships in a real biblical sense. And husbands depended on their wives to do things maybe they wouldn't, uh, the wives might not have had to have done back in England. And they learned to trust their wives and their daughters. And, you know, the frontier mentality transformed everything. You can never underestimate that. Well, uh, if there is a bright side for such a difficult path, that's it. The Bradstreets, and Anne in particular, for sure are devoted Puritans. Uh, the biblical values, uh, as interpreted by their community, are truly her values. She's not rebellious. Uh, it's subversive in, in her feminism. That's, you just can't make a case for that. It's clear that Anne didn't accept this medieval women prevalent on both sides of the oceans that women are mentally inferior or morally degraded but puritanism is definitely her world view she literally and rhetorically made choices uh to not write about the new world uh for one thing she didn't write about her life she wrote about some of it and we'll quote some of it but that's not what she's trying to do in her work. She's not writing about everyday life or her experiences in this place. Um, you know, that is to the chagrin of the historians who would have loved to see her perspective on the household and that sort of thing. 
I know. She doesn't talk about the household in New Zealand. And you know what I find disappointing? She doesn't talk about the politics. I would have loved to have known a woman's perspective on what was going on at the time. I mean, her father was a governor. Her husband would be a governor. They were political people. I'm sure she had to have an opinion on Anne Hutchinson and some of that craziness. But she doesn't write about any of that. And this is my opinion, not a confirmed fact, but I have to think that Anne Bradstreet was a very intelligent woman who used writing to keep her sanity. She's smart, her mind's active, she's independent, and she's trying to work out all these internal struggles on paper, doubts, fears, emotions, things that she's going through. You know, it's interesting to me uh, that she didn't write about New England. Um, She wrote about Old England, but... Uh, she wrote about Queen Elizabeth and how she admired who she was uh, for furthering the emancipation of women. And she wrote about the ancients. I know. But you know what she liked to write about most? She wrote about being in love with her husband. <laughs> That's unusual in an area era like this. I mean, people didn't even get married for love back then. Uh, And if you think about even today, our music poetry, we write about falling in love, maybe unrequited love, losing love. But who talks about long-term relationships in poetry? (laughs) That's a good point. I will add, if you read between the lines, and you must, especially if you are reading something written by a Puritan, because they were going to be discreet. You know, it seems that Bradstreet's had a pretty passionate relationship oh i totally agree with that and and that's nice especially when we contrast that from our current impression of who puritans were as these stern people well you know it's definitely true of hawthorne uh but of course we have to remember even hawthorne was writing 200 years after the fact and with an axe to grind so you know bradstreet's story defies that stereotype starting with the amazing story of how her book got published I agree. So here's the story. In 1647, John Woodridge, Anne's brother-in-law, who was the Puritan minister there in their community, took her book of poetry with him when he went back to England. Without her knowledge or permission, he published it and he introduced her work with this very sweet But basically, justification, he writes a disclaimer for printing something by a woman. Gary, let's read these lines written by Mercy Bradstreet Woodridge's husband, the Reverend John Woodruff, upon publishing her book. (laughs) This is not going to go well, is it? (laughs) Of course. Um, And we quote, It is the work of a woman, honored and esteemed where she lives, for her gracious demeanor, her eminent parts, her pious conversations, her courteous disposition, her exact diligence in her place, and discreet manage of her family occasions, and more than so, these poems are the fruit but of some few hours curtained from her sleep and other refreshment. I fear the displeasure of no person in the publishing of these poems but the author, without whose knowledge and contrary to her expectation, I have presumed to bring to the public view what she resolved in such a manner should never see the sun. But I found that the verse had gotten some scattered papers, affected them well, were likely to have sent forth broken pieces to the author's prejudice, which I thought to prevent as well as to the pleasure those that earnestly desired the view of the whole. You know, there's no way that he did this without her husband's consent or her father's knowledge. They, that just wouldn't have happened. 
He also wrote a poem about her, and he says this, To my dear sister, the author of these poems, There needs no painting to that comely face that in its native beauty hath such grace. If women I with women may compare, your works are solid, others weak as air. What you have done, the sun shall witness bear, that for a woman's work tis very rare. And if the nine vouchsafe the tenth a place, I think they rightly may yield you that grace. Now that's, I know, a little cheesy. Uh, but what he's trying to say, remember, in Greek mythology, there's nine muses. And the muses are considered the source of inspiration for art, literature, and science. Reverend Woodridge titled Anne's book, The Tenth Muse, lately sprung up in America by a gentlewoman in those parts. And that's all. He did not put her name on it. Uh, Do you think it was really anonymous? I mean, how does that happen? Well, I think it really was, and I'll tell you why. Uh, Let me point out a couple of things about this preface. Woodruff really justifies the fact that Anne had time to write. He's defending Anne against critical spirits, and there were. We know that people attacked her. He wanted to clarify that this only took a few hours, and those were hours she would have been sleeping. You know, he doesn't want anyone to claim that Anne was not doing her fair share of the work in the the colonies, as those hussy women, that's (laughs) Hawthorne's term. Uh, The mean girls would be insanely jealous and, and were cruel, and we know this. He emphasizes heavily that she's a respected woman, that she's a good woman. Secondly, we know that between the first and second edition, Anne got a hold of this book, and she made tons of edits. It comes across to me that after it was printed, she went back over every single word. She revisited everything. There's lots of differences between the what would you would see between maybe a first draft and a second draft, except these are two actual editions. They're significant in their edits, and there's not, in the second edition, there's only a few poems, I think like five, that weren't in the first edition. I want to point out that the second edition didn't even get published until after she'd been dead uh, six years, and it was printed not in England, but in Boston. The poem that I want to read to me supports... Uh, this view. It's a poem that she wrote about how she felt about her work getting published. And it's called An Author to Her Work. And I want to read it. And, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Thou ill-formed offspring of my feeble brain, who after birth dis by my side remain, till snatched from thence by friends less wise than true, who thee abroad exposed to public view, made thee in rags, halfling to the press to trudge, where errors were not lessened, all may judge. At thy return my blushing was not small, my rambling brat in print should mother call. I cast thee by as one unfit for light, thy visage was so irksome in my sight. Yet, being mine own, at length affection would thy blemishes amend, if so I could, I washed thy face, but more defects I saw, and rubbing off a spot still made a flaw. I stretched thy joints to make thee even feet, yet still thou runnest more hobbling than is meet, and better dressed to trim thee was my mind, but not save homespun clothes if thou hast I, house I find, 
In this array amongst vulgars mayest thou roam. In critics' hands beware thou dost not come, and take thy way where yet thou art not known. If for thy father asks, say, thou hast none. And for thy mother, she, alas, is poor, which caused her thus to send thee out the door. <laughs> you know, it's not that hard to follow, really. I know it's in that archaic English, but it's written in rhyming couplets. It's this easy pattern, A, A, B, B, C, E, D, D, and on you go. But more importantly, let's listen to what she's saying, because the whole thing is an extended metaphor or a conceit. Uh, That's the technical word for it. But it's one single metaphor that stretches the length of the poem. And she describes this book as her child, her offspring. This is something she knew about. I mean, she had eight kids. She knew about birth and babies. Anyway, she called uh, you know, her body of work an ill-formed child. She says that after it was born, it was snatched by friends less wise than true. In other words, they're good friends. I love them, but I'm not sure they're very wise. They exposed her work to the public without her really going through it. She knew that the public would see errors. She saw them and you know, it opened her up to judgment. She calls the book a rambling brat. She said it's unfit for the light. It's irksome in her sight. You know, it's annoying. Then she goes on to say, having said that, for all its flaws, it's my brat. (laughs) It's my responsibility, and I want to fix its blemishes. She says, I wash its face, but every time I do, I see more defects. And the metaphor goes on. She talks about stretching the joints to my try to make the feet even. And feet as in meter, but you know, feet is in her metaphor. She says she puts on home puts on homespun clothes. Then she says she's a poor mom and but it's out the door. There it is. So there's a lot of humility here. Maybe she's a little embarrassed, maybe she's nervous about what she's put out into the world. I mean, I remember feeling that way when we did our first podcast. You know, next week we're going to replay the Scarlet Letter. I'll never forget the first week we put that out there. I was just so sure. We had no listeners, but I was sure we were going to have a <laughs> listener that was going to email and tell us how stupid we were. <laughs> well, true. And, and you know, uh, this happens to every artist who puts their work out there in the world. And it is like a child. And it certainly takes a life of its own outside your control. And it makes you incredibly uh, vulnerable. You know, your your soul is on display to some degree. And there's some anxiety that goes with that. But uh, as an artist who's put an album together in the past, I totally identify with this. But I also want to add another um, cultural element of Puritanism. Puritanism For Puritans, humility was extremely important, and we see a lot of that here, too. Well, I want to end our discussion of Anne. I feel like we've just started, but I do want to end by reading her most famous piece. This is the one, one of the ones. She wrote her husband several poems over the years, and uh, I'm not sure that she ever meant anyone to read it. It's a private poem. It's a personal poem. It wasn't ex- published at all, but expresses, a, at least during her life, I'll say, but expresses a deep love, a, gra- uh, a heart of gratitude, and a trust between two people. 
you know, Simon Bradstreet clearly cherished and valued his wife, and she wanted him to know that she appreciated that. She's happy in her marriage. She's happy with him. She feels very bonded. She feels very valued by him. This is a simple poem. Again, it's written in these little couplets. Everybody can understand what she's saying. It's what many of us, you know, we aspire to this. We make wedding vows, although not everyone, you know, makes it. Uh, but let me read this poem from Anne to Simon, and it's called To My Dear and Loving Husband. If ever two were one, then surely we. If ever man were loved by wife, then thee. If ever wife was happy in a man, compare with me, ye women, if you can. I prize thy love more than whole mines of gold. Of all the riches that the eath doth hold, my love is such that rivers cannot quench, nor aught but love for thee give recompense. Thy love is such I can no way repay. The heavens reward thee manifold, I pray. Then while we live and love, let's so persever that when we live no more, we may live ever. Wow, wow. that's a pretty sweet tribute to, you know, to what seems to be a pretty wonderful couple. Well, it's true. And her faith and her life, they weren't easy. In a later poem, she represents her life as a walk through a wilderness. But, you know, the bright side and the way she saw it is, yeah, she was in a wilderness, but she wasn't walking alone. And many of her poems talk about that. They talk about her love and how she had love for her maker and love for her husband. And she had love for her father, love for her children. She did not write a poem about loving New England. <laughs> ah, interesting omission, you know. You know, nevertheless, it gives us a picture of uh, Puritan New England by a woman who maybe didn't even want to be there necessarily. And um, it's not a negative picture. No, but it isn't. It's a picture of unity and love and perhaps even a little transcendence. Well, and it's nice to remember that. I mean, when we're looking at a people from the outside, we don't really see the full picture, especially when we're reading things that people wrote about them. It's not possible. We can't. But sometimes it's nice to just listen to what they were saying about their experiences, about their life when they're speaking from their heart. And that's exactly what Bradstreet is all about. Indeed. Well, thank you for listening today. Um, next episode, we will rebroadcast our very first series, The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Uh, I know this is one of your favorite books, Christy. Well, it is. <laughs> but speaking of ill-formed offerings of our feeble brains, I mean, I'm a little nervous to go back and listen to our very first ill-formed attempt at podcasting. I know, me too. Uh, you know, revisit that book with us for the next two weeks, especially as we begin a new school year. Uh, always remember that uh, free listening guides are available on our website as well as merchandise. Most importantly, please share an episode with a friend. When you share, that's the only way we grow. Peace out. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 